fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Hello, welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. I've assembled the Brain Trust. We are going to tackle a great topic today. Who are the Brain Trust, though? Before I get ahead of myself, we've got to tell you who we are. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Hey, Dan. Great to be here. Starting to think about train travel. Wondering if that in a pandemic is better or not. I don't know. I, I think a lot of people are wondering, uh, anytime you have people together, it's going to be bad for a pandemic. Uh, but we got to find out. I feel like our enigmatic engineer may, may be on a train right now. Uh, ben, Seepser, where are you recording from today? You're absolutely right, Dan. I'm here in the engine room of Wilford's Glorious Machine, and I am just marveling at the engineering and technology that has gone into this beautiful invention. Well, I, I got to tell you, um, were you part of the resistance that made it up from the tail to the engine, or are you part of Wilford's inner circle? Oh, I, I'm just, I just built it. Uh, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing's gone, gone on yet. Okay, <laughs> what are we talking right. about? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that is, I'm, it's great to hear. So, what are we talking about? I think that that's a great question. We're talking about the movie Snowpiercer and the television show, and this is the movie. We're going to talk about the 2013 version by Bong Joon Ho, which is a name that elicits giggles from the 12 to 21 demo. I remember when I got Chinese food from a place called the Chinese Ho, and I couldn't go in and out of there without laughing. Uh, but we're talking about. Snowpiercer, this is a, one of his great movies. I love this movie. This is a lot of fun. It's about a train that in the middle of a global apocalypse that, that becomes negative 80 degrees outside, and this train is racing around the world, keeping the last vestiges of humanity alive within its walls. So from what I understand, as, we get, as we're talking about this train, this is about 1,001 cars. It's a 10-mile-long train. It's got an incredible engine we're going to talk about. Unclear how many people that are there. Connected... It connects the railroads around the world, 437,000 kilometers of tracks, exactly one year of track. This is all the stuff we're going to talk about, but we got to start this conversation off with a very important question, guys. Why are we on a train in the first place? What are the advantages of riding around the apocalypse on a train and not a single structure I'm not convinced, not that it matters, but what do you guys think? Well, I think, you know, in the movie, there's definitely some reasons because the train was being built for other reasons and it's there and, and it's of necessity you have it. I do have a lot of concerns about living out the apocalypse on a train, um, particularly one that's moving because I am terrified of being derailed. I just, I feel like that's the biggest danger in all of this, though there's also the danger of Where's the track? How long is that going to last? But there's probably some good reasons to be on a train. Since Ben designed it, we might want to like defer to him in this. <laughs> yes, yes. Our engineering department, really top-notch here at uh, Wilford Industries. What's interesting is how well the, the... I like, Dan, how you talked about the track and derailment. So we see when the train hits um, the ice shelves, when it's going through that like canyon area, it almost derails, but somehow miraculously <laughs> stays, stays railed. Uh, which just goes to show you how well-balanced it is. Uh, but also what's really interesting is how uh, sturdy the track is because we're in this ice world, you know, it's, it's a new ice age and there would be, there are glaciers everywhere and the track is strong enough to stand up to the glaciers, which, you know, glaciers carve up mountains, but not the Wilford track. That's, that's really what, 
what it's what's amazing here. I've got two questions on that. Number one, to me, it seems like there would have to be something special about the track itself to be able to withstand having zero maintenance because the track's exactly a year long, right? So it has zero maintenance for an entire calendar year. Uh, you know, th- as far as the speed and breaking through the glaciers, you're talking about a 10-mile train, 1,001 cars. Once you have the momentum, God knows how much energy it would take to get that thing moving. But once it's going, I can see it blasting through the ice. But I, I think I think the rails, I think that that's a really good point. Yeah, it's really interesting. You you mentioned that the the maintenance. There's actually not even one year. There's there's no maintenance whatsoever. It's no no one's like hanging off the side of the train, you know, <laughs> knocking uh, railroad ties back into yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. Like that thing's lasted for 18 years without any maintenance, which is very impressive. Like you look at um you know light rails for commuting, you know, for uh, commuter trains, and those things get maintained regularly where pieces of track get replaced because something gets worn down or, you know, a brake is too hard and it, you know, you get a flat spot or whatever. And yeah, it, it's, it's a very impressive feat of engineering that that thing has survived as long as it has. And, and the other quick comment I'd make, Dan, when I ask why a train, you, you kind of said it yourself, structures. I mean, you don't have a lot. It's very long and skinny. So from a thermal mass point of view, it's a weird shape. Um, you you would think if it's negative 80 outside and you're trying to keep reasonable temperatures inside, you'd aim for low surface area to volume, just as a general starting point. And this appears to maximize, in some ways, your surface area to volume. Um, maybe not a pure maximum, but, you know, um, a pretty good large surface area here. And that was the other feature I didn't really understand. Um, and there's the crampness of it. I think it came down to this was all they had. Um, which yeah. makes me wonder how quickly the whole earth cooled. Like you really weren't aware that this was happening, but maybe not. Human beings seem to be unaware a lot of the time. Well, I think it's funny because yeah. in the movie, they're on the train for 17 years. And I don't know how you're, cr- and, I mean, and the people living in the tail section, that's roughly what the subway's like in LA. <laughs> so I couldn't imagine living in that for 17 minutes, much less 17 years. So that was, that was kind of a shock. Yeah. But let's talk about this engine. One other thing though, Dan, is what's also good though about being on the train is you can see if the world is getting better. Being able to travel around the world is important because they will find out when it, when it's over. <laughs> Yeah, which is which is you know kind of what they start to do, um, and and I think that that's actually a great point. That's a great point. Um, now let, let's talk about how this is getting around the world. It's got. They talk about the in- eternal engine that's kind of powering all of this. Is that a thing? I mean, is that perpetual motion? Is this another marketing ploy that we talk about so often? Uh, what's going on with this engine? Well, in some ways, it has to be more than perpetual motion because perpetual motion is just something moving without, um, you know, like something that can spin forever. Uh, But this thing is not only spinning forever, it's pulling a thousand car train. (laughs) So it's more than that. And it seems unrealistic to me. The energy's got to be coming from somewhere. I I mean, solar to me is the most obvious because all of our energy on the planet comes from the sun. So you know, the entire roof of the train is maybe covered in solar panels and they use the water and maybe they do some electrolysis to get to make some fuel so that you can, uh, you know, have the train going at night and day because um, otherwise it would just turn off at night. Yeah, I, oh, I think Ben is very much right here. This is not about perpetual motion. It's really about marketing. 
like the internalness of the engine is is in principle how long it's going to last. Uh, and even there, we see it fails to live up to the marketing as there are human beings being placed in parts of the train as it wears out, as it as it must, but maybe not as quickly as they imply it does in, in this in this time frame. But we know you can't avoid entropy and things do wear eventually. So that's part is, is reasonable. I mean, when you think about it, something running for, you know, almost 20 years without any maintenance is very impressive. You know, most of our heavy machinery that we have, you know, they have like 10,000, you know, 1,000 hour cycles before they have to go in for heavy maintenance. Like that's not a very long time. You know, maybe once a year, every half a year, like planes get torn down and, you know, reinspected and rebuilt. And this train's been going for 18 years without anything always moving. That's that's impressive. Well, I mean, like Denon said, there is maintenance. It's uh, the, the kids in the tail section. If you lose a gear, if you lose a, a fuel pump, that's you grab one of them. Well, and but, they... all the, <laughs> but all the other parts are still moving. The train yeah. never stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like that, that's... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, it is very true. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the engine is kind of a fantastical part of this. But what I think is really a great reality of this and kind of a really cool experiment is it's a traveling biome. I mean, this is a yes. closed system. Everything's in balance. I, you know, they've got every car. They've got 1,001 cars. They, they've got a car for everything. Not only are, are they keeping everyone alive and in this closed system, but they've got classes. I mean, some people live better than others. It's not even like it's a utilitarian society or like in uh, utopia. You know, it, it's 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 everyone. There's It's different. Some people are the working class. Some people are just sitting around getting spa days in the in the beauty parlor. I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. So let's talk about that because, you know, I got to give you a shout out here, Ben. I know you love your farm sim games. Uh, you got me into a couple of sim games like Surviving Mars, which is great, and this other game called Frostpunk, which are both simulators. One's in the freezing cold, one's on Mars, but they have these cool biospheres. And I, I want to talk about this. So let's talk about what it would require to keep a closed system in place. And I'll give you some cool real life examples. So I, I'll just comment, Dan, as an opening. One of the things I do like about the train is it's closed from most perspectives, but they don't have to deal with closing the air and recirculating the air, which I, I feel personally is one of the harder things to do. Um, obviously, you have lots of challenges around food and waste and waste production, but two big things for them, water, they can suck in the snow every time they run through it, and air is obviously constantly allowed to be circulating. So it, it's kind of nice that I think the two hardest things to solve just happen naturally in the train. And and the waste, you know, they could just be doing the, well, there, there's two solutions for the waste. One is they're doing the old-timey train solution, which is you just dump it on the tracks. <laughs> but the other option is that's what the bugs eat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about that because I, am, I imagine there has to be some level of efficiency to what they're doing. It, so closed system is actually the wrong term. It is a semi-closed system. But I think what you're, Denon, those are very important key parts because the, Taking care of the oxygen, taking care of the water are the two hardest parts of this. But still, you have you have to grow you have to grow food, you have to plants, vegetables. You know, you have there's an aquarium that you have to maintain. Yep. You know, um, so it, the salt you have to get salt from that, right? So you're generating all of this stuff. Uh, but Ben, you know, you were talking a little bit about hydroponic farms. Is this the way to go since we have an abundance of water? Yeah, hydroponic farms are definitely the way to go. Not just because of 
I mean, how else are you going to do it? I guess it's the real, the real answer. I mean, you could theoretically have cars full of dirt and you grow plants in the dirt on the, on the, uh, you know, on, you know, in the greenhouses. But the reality is hydroponics are somewhere between one and a half times more efficient to 10 to 20 times more efficient, depending on the crops. Uh, hydroponics are an amazing technology. So, you know, if you do some calculations, like on, if, if everything was growing in dirt, you need like a half acre of dirt per person to, to grow enough food. And that, and if you work that out, you end up needing like a 1300 mile long train to have that many cars. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Now hydroponics, on the other hand, if you have, uh, if you use just, if you use like kind of average hydroponic crops, but uh, well, the good average. So things like cucumbers, lettuces, cabbages, things like that. You can get it down to 156 miles of train. Wow. Which, you know, now we're talking. It's but, 15 times as big as it is right now. Yeah, but if, you, if everybody only eats tomatoes, you can actually do it with only 800 cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, you well know it's what a I good love thing about I this. like tomatoes. I'll just say that yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah, there's some. I mean, tomatoes are very versatile food. If you've ever eaten Italian yeah. food, they really can turn tomatoes into. That's. I love to. I don't like tomatoes that much, but I love yeah. tomato products. Yeah. yeah, efficient hydroponics can go two to three hundred tons of tomatoes per acre. Wow, per year. But eight hundred of the cars out of the thousand would need to be would dedicated. need to be tomato tomato okay. greenhouses. Well, one of the things, Dan, that I like about this is it simply connects. You're the one I know who always brings in the real-life examples, but one of my favorite things was my one and only trip to Alaska, um, going to the greenhouses and seeing how they did the farming, and the way they worked on getting farming because of the how much of the year it's just night because you're far enough north, right? And so you not only need the hydroponics because it's cold and everything, but you need light sources for the plants. And that was an interesting thing on this train. Not all the cars could you see outside and have light, um, so I can imagine some combinations there as you as you get into the farming and that we're already considering and doing stuff like that was really cool to me. No, I think that's great. Now, let me give you guys a quick example here because we've actually tried to make biospheres uh, at the University of Arizona in Oracle. They have a there was a thing. Well, this was actually owned by a company at first. This is from 1987 to 1991. There was a closed system experiment. And this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to hermetically seal people into these into these buildings and create everything they needed this was for experiments to have um you know things on mars colonies on mars or or the moon or whatever you know much like surviving mars that you got me into ben Uh, could we do that first run through here's what happened they didn't have enough oxygen they had lots of animal die-offs which included hummingbees I'm humming bees, <laughs> all bees hum, humming birds and humming and <laughs> humming birds and bees, which were the pollinators, guys. So the, the fruits and vegetables weren't getting pollinated. They had oxygen gulping bacteria that grew in the soil. So that got rid of all the oxygen. Cockroaches flourished, which may have been a positive. We're going to get to that in a second. They had an invasive ant species that was accidentally sealed in. It dominated all the other 
all the other species of ants, so they had problems there. They got some of this stuff stabilized. I'm going to put a link up because the whole story is absolutely incredible. But, you, you know, there's problems here. This is, this is not, and these were under ideal circumstances. Being on a train is not an ideal circumstance. So, uh, you know, this seems like a difficult task to pull off on each train. And if one car goes down, you know, you got to have redundancies in place. Ben knows that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you know, you're on the train. You got to have backups because, you know, you can't stop. <laughs> you can't stop for spare parts. Which goes back to our earlier comment, Dan. This is why I'm building mine in a very, very, very large building cavern situation and not a train. But that's, you know, just me. <laughs> right, right. Well, and then the one, one other, the one car I want to talk about, which I thought was kind of fun, but I think would be very difficult to, to you know, kind of accomplish, was the aquarium car where they have sushi. They have, I think, someone goes in there and grabs an urchin, uh, you know, a live urchin. I mean, this is essentially like Noah's Ark. You only have the animals you bring on, and they're the only animals left on the planet. And we've all had aquariums, you know, so maybe maybe we haven't, but saltwater aquarium at home is very easy to maintain. There are large aquariums where you can house bigger animals. But on a moving train, this is the closed system that kind of worries me the most because it requires so many elements that are not readily available around us. Well, Dan, I actually just got really worried when you made the statement these are easy to maintain because I don't know about you guys. I've never had a fish live very long. We were not very creative in naming our fish, and we had happy fish one through like 27. But I agree with you. But what, what I did like that they got right, in a sense, right, for lack of a better word, was how rarely they could have the sushi, right? I think I'm almost positive I remember correctly. They made a comment that that was a very special day, right, because they had to limit how often they could kill and eat the fish. So clearly they were taking into account the life cycle there of the fish to maintain a balance. Yeah, I think they, it was either once or twice a year they get to have sushi. It was very rare. Uh, th- what's interesting, though, is, is the weight of the water. Like, it's impressive that they're doing that. But what's even more impressive is that the, um, the weight of the water in, like, a boxcar is, like, two to three times the mass that a normal boxcar could carry. Oh, wow. So... So it, the train ha- must have a great suspension yeah. to, <laughs> to uh, support that kind of weight. Well, I also imagine just the insulation must be. That's a real trick here because it's so yeah, cold absolutely. outside. How do we keep every single car so hot? Very good insulation. That's, I mean, I think you nailed it right there. Um, it also probably helps that they ha- by having solar panels on. Well, there'd be solar panels on all the roofs that weren't clear. I mean, I think. At least in the show, they mentioned that the, the, the agricultural rooms were greenhouses. So, the, you know, they had glass roofs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see observation cars and things like that as well. Yeah, and we all know how hard it is to design really good insulating glass. Um, and you have the double, yeah. you know, double pane. This is probably triple or quadruple pane. And it's, it's a really, yeah. I think you're right, Dan. The insulation problem is really a challenge. Though you're probably, you know, I have noticed my thermoses that hold my drinks are getting better. So, you know, some good vacuum gaps between the various walls. And, and um, But what's interesting is he probably wasn't building his train originally for this circumstance. And that's the other thing I find fascinating a little bit is this from a plot point of view. 
You know, I, I think I think the heat is key, but also remember, especially in the tail section, there's a lot of people running around, and that energy. If you can trap that the body heat energy and keep that inside, I think that that's really going to be key to keeping everything warm. But you know, as it, we're talking about the tail section, one of the things. This is another one of my my favorite parts of the movie, although I think it's everyone's least favorite. Were those nutrient bars, those those protein bars that they see, uh, that that are they're made out of bugs. We see later on that this is a bug produced protein bar. Now I. Obviously, everyone's icking and grossing and, you know, yucking everybody's yum. Uh, but but I got to tell you here, this insect protein may be the wave of the future. So I don't know what you guys thought about that, but but there's a lot of potential here. Well, I had two big problems. Well, I, I agree with you, Dan, that bugs is a core source of protein. I'm not necessarily grossed out by that. I just didn't understand the psychology of why you had to make them look so disgusting and apparently not taste very good. I mean, given the closed ecosystem, it probably wouldn't have taken you that much to carry just a little bit of extra flavoring around, coloring, and, and, and develop a slightly better process. So again, I've said it well, just a few moments ago, it, it was calling much more a plot device and, and perhaps a lack of time. But if I was preparing a food system, I would actually focus on making really good tasting, good looking bug paste for everybody. Then all I need are tomatoes and cockroaches. I don't need all these other carts. I just fake the food. <laughs> tomatoes and cockroaches, man, that's the, that's the meal of the future, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, well, now, like, can I tell you guys a little something about crickets? Can, can you give me a little time for crickets? I can. Are you guys ready? Okay. Please. All right. All right. So here's what's great about crickets. So the way that we, the way that these are basically harvested is they're they're you know they're bred, I guess, for lack of a better term. They grow. We freeze them. We roast them like you know like coffee beans, and then we grind them into a powder. Here are the stats, ladies and gentlemen. They are the only comp- complete protein that you can find in nature. Insects are. They have. They have. The, they're the only only protein source with fiber. They've got essential vitamins and minerals, enough B12 to make it similar to salmon, and they're great on a train. Ben, you're talking about hydroponics, and I thought water was a great idea for that. Well, check this out. One gallon of water gives you one pound of crickets. There's 2,000 gallons of water for every pound of beef, and in the TV show we see that they do have beef trains. One half pound of cricket food produces a pound of cricket powder. I don't even know how that works, but that's the way it works. 20 pounds of grain are required for a pound of beef. 80% of a cricket's body can be eaten as opposed to 40% of a cow, and I'm only using beef because we do see that in the TV show. A very efficient meal, um, and the only real downside besides the the crunchy part of it, but we take care of that if we turn it into a powder, is the ick factor. And as I mentioned with the biospheres too, there was a roach problem. This handles both problems, but human beings have to get over themselves, guys. And this includes the three of us. Um, So what do you think about that? And would you be willing to eat one of these cricket bars? I told you, Dan, just as long as you add just a little extra of the right flavoring, don't tell me it's a cricket bar and have a cool logo on it. Like, don't make it all smushy and glassy and look like a gross protein bar. Put something cool on it, you know, like a Willy Wonka sticker. Yeah, you want to be fooled, <laughs> man. You Lie to me is what you're saying. Lie to me, guys. Exactly. Lie what? to me. Lie to me. What, what do you think, Ben? I don't have it. I mean, I've had cricket tacos. They're fine. I, I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> Are you, have you serious? Are you really? Yeah, they're great. Oh, wow. You cook you cook them up with taco spices and it's, it's 
it's just a taco. Holy cow! Look, at, we're ahead of the curve here. Well, I'm gonna put up so I'm gonna put up a link to a protein bar. There's a company called Jiminy. Uh, I wonder where they got that name. Uh, that makes cricket protein dog food, and that's really the way they're trying to get into this. So I, I think crickets and insects are the wave of the future. And if we were gonna be on a train, I, I think this is it, guys. Cockroaches are little. Actually, I think cockroaches are probably a little harder to sell to people, but cockroaches produce like none other insect. So I think when you're looking at these closed systems, they're the ones, guys. The cockroaches are the ones, but got to get people to eat it first. Okay, so let's talk about lastly, and definitely lastly, because this is the most grisly part of this of this series, guys, is when the tail section, when they get out of hand, things go very awry for them. Much like during the French Revolution when people were getting their heads chopped off to instill fear and terror amongst the populace, so does the management employ such tactics on the tail section of Snowpiercer. You gotta lose a limb here, and the way they do it on Snowpiercer is they stick that limb out into the freezing cold, they freeze it, and then they smash it. This is a horrible, horrible form of punishment, but we're not here to discuss the morals of that. Den and I know you and I, we're, we're morally neutral when it comes to these types of things. We talk about some weird ethics on the show. But from a scientific standpoint, how is this possible? Well, I think a couple things to realize. Like, I just would like to point out, as a fun demo, I freeze things and smash them in liquid nitrogen all the time for uh, grade school kids. So the idea of freezing and smashing, I think many people are familiar with. What's fascinating to me is when I occasionally pick weird things that don't smash well after you freeze them. So th there's there's the freezing and the smashing. Real quickly on the freezing, you know, it, it it's unclear that you could really do it in the seven minutes. We've talked about this a little bit. And a key piece of this to be able to achieve anything like that is the air, that you're moving by the train really fast. Because that's going to really take heat away quicker um, preventing insulating layers. And just as a difference, you know, freezing things in your freezer can take a couple of hours. If you can get it down to liquid nitrogen temperatures, you're talking a few seconds. So there is a space in there in which it's the minutes that the train times them for. Well, we're looking at, so I've, I've got a great article I'm going to put up on the website, and it's got this great little chart that talks about the temperature outside versus the wind chill, how fast you're going, which produces the perceived temperature or essential temperature or effective temperature. There, there's the word, effective temperature. And it's negative 80 degrees. We've learned that it's negative 80 degrees outside. Going at about 40 miles an hour, we're getting at about one four, negative 148 degrees Fahrenheit. Liquid nitrogen is at negative 346 degrees Fahrenheit. So what's our target temperature here if we want to freeze off an arm in around seven minutes, which I believe is what they're talking? Yeah, so a very, very rough estimate. You got to get down to probably at least negative 250, maybe negative 200. I'd feel more comfortable pushing to negative 300 to, to be safe in this range. Now that makes sense. And I'm guessing if we look at that chart, if we go, you know, we're at negative 80, if we go, we're going about 70 miles an hour. I think we're pretty close into that range. Uh, ben, what do you think about all this? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's the important thing is that is the wind chill, which we've already mentioned that you got to get down to that, you know, 250 to negative 250 to negative 300 range. That's critical. You've really got to be moving fast. You've got to start at a baseline pretty cold, which you know, there, there's been statements by the writers that the earth was like negative, um, negative like 100 or so um, already. 
So the wind chill could get you down there. So you're getting pretty close. So, I mean, this is feasible with the information that we're given. And let's not also forget, guys, That's we're just talking about basic temperature and wind chill. They put some kind of weird substance all over the arm. Would that have some sort of, sort of thermal reducing or effect on, on the arm, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. So... It- the the co the like the coefficient of heat transfer t- between skin bare skin and air i mean it, it's decent i mean obviously when you go outside and it's cold you feel cold and that's cuz your skin is losing heat but it's not that good so you know that that um that gel it could it could potentially be uh have nooks and crannies on it so that you get more surface area than your bare skin would have so you get more more heat transfer You'd have to be careful that doesn't create like a um, little eddies that actually end up insulating you. So you'd have to be you have to be kind of careful with that. But generally, like wet things uh, transfer heat better than dry things do. Well, yeah, if you get insulation in there, that would definitely be counterproductive <laughs> to what you're yeah. trying to do. Um, well, OK, so that's the first part. So I believe if I'm understanding the science correctly, it is possible to freeze the arm, but shattering it like that. I think that's the tricky part. So, Denon, you mentioned that you smash things that don't exactly shatter quite like quite as theatrically as that. Uh, and I think this may be the case with the arm. I- I'm pretty sure that that human tissue is a little too fibrous to shatter quite like that uh, would you agree given that given that you are kind of our local freezing shattering expert oh definitely dan i mean it's not just well you've got all the fibrous materials um you also have the bone which is interesting um and and just the whole sh- mechanical structure we have to realize just because things are frozen and hard doesn't necessarily mean they shatter right that has to do with the other properties of materials brittleness versus non-brittleness and the the fibrousness the polymer like nature of it tends to hold things together um, i'd much more expect sort of a mixture like personally that some of it would shatter but a lot of it would be left dangling. It would be very, very messy. I think it'd be very grisly and gruesome if they were really yeah. to do this. Um, yeah, and th- this is actually something you could kind of try at home. Like if you you could take like a you could freeze solid like a chicken breast or something and hit it with a hammer and see that it doesn't shatter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ben. <laughs> I think that's a, actually a great experiment because that'll yeah. show you that, that it doesn't quite work like this. You know, I think maybe in the realm of cartoons, you know, Denon, you and I talk cartoon physics right. a lot. I think maybe in that world this works perfectly, but not not in the real world, I don't think. No, not at all. No. Well, I think that we've kind of ex- explained a lot of the key parts of Snowpiercer. I- I'm very impressed. I'm looking forward to this cricket and, and tomato paste uh, little dinner. We got, we're got we at the very important part of our show. We got our errors, additions, and omission sections, things we want to talk about, but we're not going to. I got quite a list here, guys. I got a lot to make up for here. But uh, Ben, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah. So the, the other things that I, I, one thing, another thing I saw that was really impressive about the engineering was the the bridges that we see. Uh, for the track, they're very spindly and look very much like they barely would stand up straight because they're they don't they don't seem to have a very broad base. So I was very impressed by the uh, the engineering of the bridges. And also in the show, they make a claim that there's 130 agricultural cars. Um, it's not clear if that includes the meat cars and other things, but you know, so that basically 10% of the train or so is dedicated. So that means they have something that's you know eight times more efficient than tomatoes to grow, which good, good on them. 
Uh, no, I, I think you're right there, Ben. Uh, ben, what do you what do you have for this? I, I got two big things. One is how do you move around this darn train, which is so long? Like, how do you get from the beginning to the end? Uh, a skinny, small train. Another reason not to make a train. There are clearly s- secret compartments with really small pa- people on conveyor belts or something moving up and down the train. The other one in, in the movie, I'm sort of fascinated at the ending. Here's this train that has survived glaciers going through ice, massive chunks of things, all sorts of stuff. And all we do is we blow the door open a little bit and the entire train crashes and blows up. Um, and, and there's an implication that everybody but like three people are dead suddenly. Um, and, and they leave the train to go survive. Whereas for all I, you know, there's a lot of living food in the train. Why are you walking away? So that was a little weird to me too. Well, I think you would take the train and turn it into a solid structure, which they should have done in the first place. Uh, that's <laughs> what I'm doing, that. Dan. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, all right, I got a lot to make up here, guys. Uh, we should add the correction section on this, so stick with me. On our Castlevania episode, I talk about how the mirror mirror on the wall is being from Cinderella. It's actually from Snow White. Ah, goof that one up. On our Limitless episode, Ben talks about how Eddie didn't need to borrow money because he was quadrupling or quintupling his money every few days. Now, I posited an example about how a penny doubled every day um, could get you millions of dollars by the end of a month. I said that that was not exponential growth. I'm embarrassed. I should lose my, my analytical mastermind status. Of course, that's exponential growth. I, for some reason, was visualizing it as linear. I apologize to everyone listening that you had to deal with that. On our Voyager episode, we talked about a Yadabyte. So I didn't have this that answer. It is actually one trillion terabytes. That is what a yottabyte is. And finally, on our San Diego Comic-Con episode, I'm sure you guys saw it and thought it was perfect, but it was not. I miss, when Han Solo is frozen in carbonite, that's in Empire Strikes Back. It's not in Return of the Jedi. Uh, I was thinking they go and rescue him, and he's feature, Han Solo is featured prominently in Return of the Jedi as, as Jabba's trophy. That is not when he gets frozen. It's an Empire. Not only did I goof up, but someone quoted me in an article that was written about that panel so i apologize to her as well uh the ripple effect from my mistakes just is taking down the entire industry anyway that is those are my my apologies but we i think we got snow piercer but if you want if you notice anything else that i didn't you can get in touch with the show at f triple g bt pod you can find us on facebook at f triple g bt and of course you can get in touch with us if you want to continue this conversation or if you have any other topics you want to hear about Get in touch with us. Ben, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, you can get in touch with me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. Denon, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter and Instagram, um, at Denon Michael. Just reverse my name. And then on Facebook, um, at Prof Denon Michael. Add the prof. Got to add the prof. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. Well, this is a fun episode. This is a fun TV series and a great movie, Snowpiercer. So if you are prepping for the end of the world, which seems it seems to be nigh, uh, you, you want to use a train, be careful with this technology. It's very dangerous. You want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. Until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? 
The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. That's ftriplegbt.com, where you will find links to everything you're looking for. All the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page. Links to our social media are right there. And if you go to the top of the page, you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety you can find the links that we talked about the in real life examples that we brought to you including videos and of course we've got each episode has its own youtube video you can watch it there if you prefer and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening